Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the inner child that just wants to keep reading fantasy books like they were when he was young, Duncan Nickel. Duncan, I... I don't understand. It's... it's been so little time. How could you have read American Gods so quickly? That's very impressive. Yeah, well, uh, about that, Geordie. I haven't actually uh, quite finished the book yet. But Duncan, it's been like five days. It's only like 500 pages. And how can I not get through it? Mm-hmm. But to my shame, people, we've barely gotten to part two. So going to have to shelf this one, Geordie. Book club's going to have to go to waste. Okie dokie. The tea will be left undrunk. The biscuits will be left uneaten, biscuited. Undunked. Undunked. Oh, that would have been clever to say. <laughs> but what are we doing here so, today? Well, people, me and Geordie thought it would be really fun to do sort of a special episode. Something a bit different. Between the uh, annuals of Proper Book Club, we thought we'd just have a little chat about sort of the fantasy literature that we've read in the past that helped to find us and helped to find our taste mm-hmm. and how we got into the genre because I think it, it varies a lot based on sort of, you know, where you grew up, you had available ages as well. I find uh, people who even just, you know, a couple of years different, three or four years, mm-hmm. you know, media is different, you get different exposures. So me and Geordie thought we'll have a little chat, share our experiences and then invite you guys to all share your experiences. Yep. As always, if you want to just drop us a line at the Gmail, it's if it's just fantasy podcast at gmail.com. And just say, hey, when I go into fantasy, this was the biggest thing. This was the book that like got me in. Mm, exactly. That's what we want to hear all about. Uh, so we're going to break this down to a couple of age brackets. Um, the first one is what I'm referring to as super young. Like um, the books you're reading when you were like still learning to, to put together long sentences. Uh, would you like to tell me a little about the first book? books you were reading which you could call fantasy so this is a really interesting thing for me people to discuss because you were just jumped right in and said books you were reading Mm. geordie i i have a little bit of dyslexia and Uh, i didn't didn't really start reading until i was in senior school so we're talking 11 or 12 until i started reading for my own pleasure before that age everything was either read to me or read to me through like an audiobook. That's really surprising, especially the audiobook thing. That's my thing. I know. I grew up on audiobooks. So going back, pretty much everything I talk about, like I probably won't specify this was an audiobook, but mm-hmm. just to say, until we get to like 11 or 12, it was read to me or it was an audiobook. And that's just like a blanket statement. I really struggled with my reading when I was younger. I did not progress sort of at the normal rate. Well, you know what? That is still somewhat true for me. Whilst I don't have dyslexia, I have um, dyspraxia, which is a sort of is a learning difficulty which can result in struggles in terms of um, writing skills. So whilst it didn't affect my reading much, it did give me a bad habit, which is that my eye tends to jump down the page. So often I'd be reading a book and then I just zip, go down like two paragraphs which meant that I often had to double back to make sure I'd read something it also very amusingly really fucked up my reading experience of the final Harry Potter book because because my eye jumps down the page I missed the part where one of the Weasley twins maybe George died I just didn't realize it was happening until they were like embracing his corpse later and I was like wait what huh Oh my god, I can see how that would impact you. And I can see how many in so many books. That would be so 
inconvenient mm. at the worst moment. I had the exact opposite. So my reading came along very slowly. So I found I couldn't read traditional book size books, mm-hmm. basically, because my reading pace was so slow. Because I basically every single word with an exercise in what's that letter? What's the sound that letter makes? Mm. Let's sound out the word. And as soon as I got like halfway through the word, I go, oh, I know that word. Like my vocabulary was there. I just couldn't look at the symbol of a word and instantly go, oh, that symbol is this word. It has that Mm. meaning. I'd have to literally sound it out. And then as soon as I could recognize what the sounds were making, I go, oh, I know that word. It was agony. (sighs) Wow. We all got to start somewhere, Geordie. We certainly do. Uh, most of these early ones were also read to me by my dad. Um, I, I even have a section in my notes called with dad. Um, but the stuff which I, I got, got me started into the world of fantasy and, you know, books for kids often are quite fantastical. They quite unabashedly accept the presence of magic. So I think the obvious one would be like the fairy tales, which my, my parents told me. But the ones which I really remember standing out as ones which had an impact would probably be the Magic Treehouse series. Did you ever read those, Duncan? I didn't. My mother, I think one of my older siblings may have, because I know my mother talking about it. Is this the one, was there like a moon face character? Am I remembering that right? Uh, a moon face character? Yeah. I don't know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, maybe I'm thinking of a completely different series. It, I me- my memory was it was two American kids who found a treehouse in the woods and when they climbed up it would be full of books and if they read a book like they'd be transported even into like the period of history that it was about like if it were about dinosaurs they'd go back to dinosaur times or for about a specific part of the world they'd end up going there it was all about trying to get kids it was explicitly like book propaganda <laughs> it was um kids it, reading's really great it can take you to magical places see these kids are given a task by uh merlin or maybe nimue or whatever to go on um on these quests to find uh things from books and become magic librarians themselves Oh, that's one. So, is it like each? So, it's very standalone. I take it. Yeah, very. Uh, no, 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 no. Not standalone at all. Every, complete. Every story was very canonical. Always the same kids. Always on these different adventures, but incredibly short books. Probably like forty pages long each. That is short. I I have a something we're going to get to in a moment. A series where one of the books was sixty-five pages long, and I was like, "That's got to be mm-hmm. the shortest thing ever." Surely there's not shorter than that out there. That I would still class as like a finished story, you know, with a beginning, middle, and mm. end. Um, right, well, I'll share you my earliest memories. And mm-hmm. there's been debate if this one is fantasy. Beatrice okay. Potter. And uh, yeah, work. yeah, I see your point. I mean, they're anthropomorphized animals. Mm-hmm. That's probably the only argument I can make. Like, is does that make it fantasy? It's fantastical. A talking you know, rabbit in a jacket is a pretty fantastical mm-hmm. thing, Geordie. Mm-hmm. So, by definition, yeah, is it fantasy? I I agree. I mean, it's certainly not. It's certainly not real life. It's certainly not science fiction. So it must be fantasy by almost a process of elimination. I had such a hard time thinking. Like, well, it's so mundane. It's like mundane fantasy, low fantasy. I don't know how to define it in like traditional fantasy terms. Um, for those who don't know. 
uh, Beatrice Potter wrote a number of books. Uh, famous uh, British author. Uh, she's quite well, quite connected to the Lake District. A beautiful bit of like the English countryside. Writing sort of the I'm going to say was it early Victorian period, late Victorian period. Um, but basically, uh, stories about sort of anthropomorphized animals living fairly mundane activities in sort of the English countryside, often with a heavy kind of lesson in place for the you know for a child to take away from. You know, don't be greedy, don't be naughty, don't trust that conniving, smiling fox-like guy. He's probably up to no good. You know, I never read those books. I can't say you should go back to them now. There's a, there's a moment... <laughs> I mean, sure, they're, they're, yeah, for very little kids. I know we had them. We have this little special shelf of these itty-bitty tiny books. Like, each of them you could hold between your finger and thumb. That's how tall they are. Not to be critical, but like I feel like I've held most books between finger and thumb. That's like height wise, height wise. Oh, right. Wise. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Oh, that's interesting. So, like, pocket. Exactly. Like, take out to the park sort of deal. Mm hmm. Oh, that's cute. Oh, you should have read them. This, I've got a few more. I probably should have. For this same, like, era. Obviously, uh, Dr. Seuss, definitely fantastical. And I actually have Roald Dahl being sort of these younger memories. Uh, particularly I feel books. like that's the first one you've said, which I would actually say, yeah, that is fantasy. They're about imagination and strangeness. Do you have a Do you have a favorite uh, Roald Dahl book? I probably did love Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when oh, I was growing up. Basic. It might be that one. No, that's a very good choice. It's a reason it's one of his most popular works. I liked Danny, Champion of the World, as well, but that's definitely not fantasy. See. My two favourites... Like the Twits. I like the Twits. They were good. Um, I like George's... Marvellous Medicine. Oh, George's Marvellous Medicine. Yeah. Fantastic one. Had that on audiobook. Because it was so short, it would often go exactly. on car journeys. It's like, if mm -hmm. this is a Fantastic Mr Fox car journey, or George's Marvellous Medicine <gasps> car journey. Mr. No, it's definitely Fantastic Mr Fox. It's definitely Fantastic Mr Fox. Of course that's my favourite. I can't believe this. Obviously, you know, we're friends. We have similar tastes in literature. Yeah. But that would be my... If I had to pick one, I'd say Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm -hmm. The the way... The, so the, the repetition, the way that it described... The tweets are a great description of ugly, horrible people. And I've met people in life <laughs> and gone, you, sir, and you, madame, are like the Twix. But the way they describe the farmers in Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's like... Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I can still feel it, that sense of slight gross-outness there, just on the edge of my mind. Like, that. That feeling uncomfortableness so that's the the really little stuff you know something else i feel like is worth mentioning and this is not fantasy but i think it kind of scratched the same itch which is something which i read with my dad uh like when i was still learning to read uh was the tintin stories whilst they aren't really fantastical with the exception of one or two in which impossible things happen they are very very much adventure stories and I feel like when I read fantasy stories later, they were hitting the right buttons which had been set in place by um, reading Tintin stories and wanting to see kind of pulpy adventures. What do you think, by the way, before we move on, what really do you think made those books we've all just mentioned, uh, you know, the Magic Treehouse, you know, Bishop, what do you think made them so good for that young age compared to well, more, I don't know, I'm not going to say grimdark fantasy, obviously, with dark themes, but... <laughs> why we might put that over I don't know, Lord of the Rings 
I think what the Magic Treehouse, what I liked about it was um, it was very quintessentially American. There's a very big difference between American book for kids and British book for kids, I find. And it kind of comes down to that Beatrix Potter, Roald Dahl um, line in which there is a slight sense of uh, a slightly more whimsical and they're sort of about um, adults looking back on childhood innocence. Whereas I feel like the American children's books I read really, really got inside the head of kids and were trying to capture the voice of a kid who is the narrator trying to express themselves to a young reader. Like all the American books I remember reading when I was young, especially something like The Magic Treehouse, were basically, if not first person, then third person limited very much entwined with the perspective of the character. It's an interesting definition to draw on. I can't speak for the greatest amount of, like, American texts. I know something mm. that I always liked in the Roald Dahl is, obviously, Roald Dahl was quite well-known for giving his very dark edge. Yeah. I always thought that worked amazingly well. Because even at that young age, I know it's very popular... Uh, there's multiple series that go like lean into like the gross out obsession young kids seem to have, mm-hmm. and I felt he he like balanced that out with his plot very nicely. I had a professor when I was studying in America, when I um, who was a my professor of uh, professor of philosophy of literature, and she made us read a whole bunch of Roald Dahl stories with her, and uh, to talk about why adults write books to teach kids about trauma like James and the Giant's Peach is about an orphan and a whole bunch of Roald Dahl's um, youngsters uh, are either orphans or missing at least one parent and he and talking about how this was either used by Roald Dahl to process his own childhood trauma or was it instead a means of teaching kids about trauma in a safe environment? I mean, if it was either way, if it did both, that's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he did it, if it was helping him, that's wonderful. Uh, I definitely feel like it had the second effect. Uh, I think they're very good to just open you to the ideas. And there's an airplane going from my house, so I will stop for a second. Oh, so we get living next to an airport, a small one as well. Like, what was I saying? I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of another fantasy book I read when I was, series I read when I was extremely young, which my dad read to me. Well, what? And I'm trying to, and I remember years back, I suddenly remembered it and made a tweet about it and tagged the author and he liked the tweet. And I'm trying to see if I can find that tweet. Okay, you heard that. I'm going to finish off my last sentence so that that can be like weirdly edited round. No, I completely. If Rodal, yeah, even if intention wasn't to achieve both those points, he certainly, I can speak for most of his, achieved the second. I think they're very good books to allow kids to go. You know, the world's not always going to be great. So let's move on. I'm talking about a period of time where, when I was extremely young. When I started to get a bit older, I was still being read to by my dad, and I was still listening to audiobooks and books on tape. Um, the last couple of books my dad ever read to me would probably be when I was about nine, ten, yeah, nine or ten, uh, that sort of age range. And 
And those book series, the two which stand out to me as the ones which he read to me, were the first one. I'll go one by one. The first one was the Artemis Fowl series. Duncan, do you have any history of this series? I have immense history with this series. All I right, good. love this series. Mm-hmm. Owen Colfer. Oh, yes. Did yeah, you, um, he... was this another one that you were, you had read to you or did you read this one by yourself? So I had the first four books, um, audio books. Mm. And I know it being a quite a big thing for me because I think by the time I got to the sixth, uh, was there four? Yeah. So by the time I got to the fifth book, Lost Colony was the first one I read by myself. Well and done. it was a very empowering moment. Good for you, Duncan. Thank you. But yeah, Alchemist Val, and this was the power fantasy for yeah. uh, a child that thought himself clever. What if I was that clever? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you haven't read the series, Artemis Fowl is a, um, is a book by an Irish author called Owen Colfer. It imagines a world full of fairies with a lot of very imaginative twists. To start with, our main character is a bo- boy genius supervillain called Artemis Fowl. Um, and he discovers that fairies exist. And not only do they exist, they live underground and have hyper-advanced sci-fi technology. And the first thing Artemis does when he discovers this is ask the big important question, how can I extort money out of them? Yeah, absolutely. It was this great twist on uh, what you kind of expect out of uh, a book like that for kids. Um, That Artemis Fowl um, is basically the bad guy in the books. Like, explicitly in the first one, he's doing evil things barely barely for a good reason um and as the series goes on what you like about it is not only does it get to give you the child reading it the fantasy of being smarter than all these adults whom you're tricking but it also is a really well-written redemption story uh about a character who starts up a story basically pretty evil slowly getting less and less evil as the story goes along I agree. I think what I really enjoyed about it, it's very much a um, gateway, and I don't think you might not agree with this, to the idea of having a protagonist that isn't necessarily good. And that was so new and interesting mm-hmm. at the time. And I think it's something that I like latch onto. Oh, there can be more greyness. Mm-hmm. It's kind of new. It wasn't in a lot of the things I've been listening to. Yeah, yeah. I never read these other books that came out around the same period, but another very su- very successful series, at least by what I can tell from um from its presence in all the libraries I had growing up was the Hive series. I never read it, but I know it had a similar premise about it being like villainous characters. Ah, uh, sadly I can't speak to that one either. Um please people do tell us if you're listening to this and you read that growing up. To let us know, because I've not clear. I always wonder some of these times, like, are these books that I feel like I miss out on? Like, should mm-hmm. I revisit them? Or where do I stand? Um, talking about books in this sort of time period, so this is just a tick back before I got onto Artemis Fowl, which actually my mum mm-hmm. recommended to me. She read it first and then wrote, I'm buying you the audiobook. But I want to mm-hmm. list off, like, four, no, three book series that I listen to on audio, and these were some of my favourite books. But I don't want to dwell on them because I feel like they were influential, but they also were very mainstream and I'd rather spend my time talking about some more obscure stuff. And I listened to, on an endless loop, The Hobbit, which I would have to pick my favorite, singular favourite book of all time. 
quite possibly. Mm-hmm. I listened to the first four Harry Potters in particular. Mm-hmm. Hugh Shearer, particularly the third. Um, love that book. And the I exact to... same. The third one was the one we had on a loop. Um, the only Narnia book, Magician's Nephew. And I listened to that on Near Loop. Yep, of course. Naturally. What else would you do? The the one... Whatever. Whatever. Uh, very similar... Very similar for me, actually, is that I had the the abridged Hobbit, which I listened to over and over. I, it probably was the same one for you. Did it have a, the, the classic image of a very slender golden smaug all lying on um on a bed of gold on the cover? Um, yes, with a little almost like silhouetted hobbit with the ring on, sort of. Yes, exactly. Front. Exact yeah. same version. Right. Um, it's a really good um it's a really good edition of a story because it is a lot, a lot shorter. It's like four hours long and the and as someone who has owned the um has owned the the unabridged audiobook of The Hobbit, which is eleven hours long, it's impressive how intact the story is, considering how it's chopped down everywhere it can. It's not like editing this podcast. It's like editing the dead noise out in between our pauses, the times when we stumble over words and have to chop that out. It's a bit like that. These itty-bitty cuts made throughout the story which just bring it down to an amount that you cannot believe. I always found, though, what's so interesting is that when I then eventually read the book years later, Mm -hmm. the only moment that jumped out to me when I was like, wait, what? I don't remember this. Is the one scene when um, Bilbo is pickpocketing the troll's pocket, mm-hmm. and the bag talks to him like he came out like the troll's purse. Oh yeah! And the purse says some words, and that wasn't in the cut down version. And I and I remember reading that, being like, I like I should have remembered that. What? What? Yeah. Also, that does not fit the world of Lord of Rings. What the fuck? Talking bags? Never brought it up again. No one else ever has talking luggage. Oh, I'm shaking my head. I'm shaking I my know. head. I know. Yeah. But... The line that stood out to me, uh, and this is a standout moment because The Hobbit was the first book my dad ever went. Uh, I'm not going to read this to you. You just you read this one yourself. Not because he disapproved of The Hobbit. In fact, he gave me his copy of it, um, a very old second edition of the book, which I read so many times the front cover fell off. Um he gave me that, and yeah, I sat down, I started reading, and then I went, what's this weird joke about golf doing here? I know. He knocks off the, the chief goblin's head, and it flew through the air, and went down a golf hole. Something mm-hmm. like that, was it? The Battle of the Green Hill. Hole. Yeah. I always found that one weird. It's, it's... There's so many little out of place bits. I always remember there was a, a video game that came out in the early 2000s as well, mm-hmm. that had some of those moments in it, and I was just like, what 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 tone because this uh, game wasn't based off lord of the rings were coming out and i was very like you know enjoying the films but this game mm-hmm. was like based purely off the book i'm like mm-hmm. they've interpreted things very interesting it's funny that we haven't had more hobbit video games because i know there are some confusing rights in regards to the lord of the rings and video games you told me once that you can't make a fellowship of a ring video game yeah, so let me explain that in full. Basically, um, to, this is my understanding, and 
it may have been updated. I know Amazon was very, very happy with their money when they're buying up rights. But mm-hmm. essentially, when the Lord of the Rings films were coming out, the rights to make video games of the films and make video games of the books were two separate entities. So the guys making the movies couldn't make a Fellowship video game uh, because another company had already made a Fellowship of the Ring video game based off the book, but released it to tie in with the movie, despite the fact it had nothing to do with, other than both being based off the same source material. Very weird time in sort of Lord of the Rings rights. We've got like three games. We've got The Hobbit based off the book, The Fellowship, and then like a War of the Ring RTS style thing. Uh, but yeah, based purely off the books. So talking about those sort of audiobooks, you know, the Hobbit one that you read, I personally, my copy of um, The Fellowship literally has rounded edges that it's been read mm. so much. Um, and I think it's broken in half now. I like we're on the same page with a lot of this. Do you have multiple editions of The Hobbit? Do you have the book, have any of these books where you've gone and you've started buying up like new versions just to preserve your old ones? Like you still have your old beat up copy, but you can't read that now. That has to sit on the, se- the shelf. No, uh, I've only have, I have purchased books which I've read on audiobook and then purchased a physical copy later, just so that whenever I like, I can just pick them up and have a little peruse because it's much easier to peruse a physical book than it is a digital one. Um, but that's the closest I come. I I like my well loved copies. Oh, I like them too. That's why I preserve them and will never read them again. <sighs> The other series I read alongside Artemis Fowl, or which my dad read with me, was His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, starting with The Northern Lights. This is an interesting one for me to comment on. So I did read this, but I read it Mm -hmm. after the, I think it was 07, uh, Golden Compass film had come out. Mm. So did you read it Mm. before that, I take it? Oh yes, long time before that, long time. I would have been... Uh, eight-ish when I started reading those books, and I was probably ten when we finished it. Yeah. So exactly this sort of period of time in which my uh, my dad was reading these slightly more complicated books to me. Um, I remember it being um, a very unique experience for me because, for one thing, I was actually... I didn't really pick up on this to begin with, but I was going to Catholic school when I um, when I was reading these books. Or, well, hang on, it wasn't a Catholic school. It was a Christian school. I think it was Protestant, but we were still Catholic as a family. Like, we were still going to church and stuff. Um, And it sort of, I guess, was coincidental that around the time I finished these books, and I still hadn't really gotten that they were anti-religious, that they were uh, atheistic books, it, um... But it was, it sort of coincided when I stopped going to church. Um, so I don't know whether it got under my skin in some subtle way, which I didn't understand. But I it mean, did sort of just happen around the same period of time. Are we saying it's official? His Dark Materials stops your children going to church. Uh, I think it might be right. I think Philip Pullman got me. That's, that's very interesting that it had that impact on you. I had a very similar-ish experience. Uh, not with his dark materials and a bit later in life, but my family were never active churchgoers, as it were. Uh-huh. So I had a lot less far to, uh, if I say fall, to um, drift. 
that's a better term. Um, I think my dad at one point told me not to tell my teachers that I was reading these books. I think that was when I sort of found out that they were anti-religious. I think he was the one who told me that. It's really interesting because I read these books um, as a response to the film. And I'll tell you now, Mm -hmm. I skipped the first one. I went, watch the movie. I get it. Straight on to the second. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a bad idea. It was a bad idea, but I stuck the, to it. The, 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 I know. The, 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 so, if you haven't seen a movie, the movie doesn't actually finish the book. Like, it gets to uh, the last fifth. Like, the ending and the climax of the book doesn't happen in the movie. It just stops. I remember being extremely outraged about this in the movie theater, being like, what? Why are you doing that? That's the book. It is not over yet. I'm glad we had those experiences. Film adaptions are very iffy in that uh, sort of, I think that noughties time period, because I think Harry Potter had done, been such a success. Everyone yeah. else was having a stab at it. And the results exactly. were... Yes. Um, Chronicles of Narnia and His Dark Materials, both attempts to, um, to capture that magic. Oh, well, I'm going to have to let in a little secret here, but I will go to bat for the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe film. I thought that. I agree. I agree. And the sequel, Prince Caspian. I've not seen Voyages on the Dawn Treader. I haven't seen that film. I have an ex-girlfriend who says it's very good. I will trust her judgment. Um, Speaking of books designed, which were then turned into films designed to capture the success of a Harry Potter franchise, we're now moving on. Uh, these are now, we're entering the era of books I started reading by myself. Well, um, I'm going to have to jump in here, Geordie. Okay. Because I need to tell you now, you start reading for yourself. There is actually one other book series that I do just want to throw in here, just because of its obscurity, before we talk okay. about the book series that got me actually reading for myself. And gotcha. it's actually midway through this other book series that I started reading it. This book series, I had to Google for this podcast because I could not remember it was my, this is my um, secret. What was that? What was it called? And I could only remember like one plot element. And I was typing it into Google. I'm like, please be in the title. And is this book series where the kids go down a rainbow staircase in like one of the kids' basements, and there's three kids, and they find a magical land. Duncan, Duncan, that's exactly the book I was trying to remember. Oh my god. That's exactly the book I was trying to remember, and who, and who, I, 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 I sent a message on Twitter to the author. Tony Abbott. What was the series called? The Secrets of Droon. Droon! I was trying, I was trying to find it by calling it Floon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, I can't believe it! People, people listening. The Secrets of Droon, I don't know, I could not find this on the internet, it was hard. There's actually a full wiki page. And there's one post, there's like two posts on Reddit, one of which is a post of someone going, wow, I can't believe there's so little information and only one post on Reddit. Duncan, we have to read The Secrets of Room for the podcast. I'm happy to do that. So people don't know, this book series, written by Tony Abbott, I think it appeared about 11 years. The first book in the series, I think, is 65 pages. This is the short book I was talking about. Mm. It's called, I think it's called, it's called like The Rainbow Staircase and the Magic Carpet. Something like mm-hmm. that. Geordie, guess how many books are in the Dune series? Probably like fucking 20? 44. 44! I knew... Yeah. Um, <laughs> these are these are books literally written where we, it's just... It's not even like an, an author writing these. It's like a 
a publishing house is saying, we need books to fill American school libraries. Give us anything. And just farming them out. Blah, 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 blah. It's the exact same for the Magic Treehouse, just a teeny bit older. I, well, I remember that. I only read the first four, or had the first mm-hmm. four read to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember them quite positively. They really got that we're going to a magical land mm-hmm. uh, vibe. There are some weird elements. Apparently, the series got, like, weirdly dark later on. <sighs> like, some sh- some stuff happens to, like, the main cast of characters, and they get pretty, they get some trauma. Um, but that's only what I've read from, like, a one Reddit post. Oh, God, so, I'm know. so excited. <laughs> we gotta read these for the, for the podcast, Duncan. Should be easy. 65 pages. 40 oh, yeah. page, forty books, assuming they're around the same uh, length. That'll be 1,300 pages? About that. I think the longest one in the whole series is, like, 130 pages. And that's, like, mm. special double length. Um, Whoa. I know. But yeah, what I remember, than... what I remember about these books is that, and my and I did this because my dad would always laugh about it. Was like the proclamations, um, the characters would make, like "Holy cow" and stuff like that. Extremely American. My dad loved that. What I remember from this book series is this moment where, so the first time as a, even as a very young child, I was like, "That makes no sense." Um, oh. There's a bit. I think it's in the maybe this is in the fourth book. They go to like this city in the sky and there's this special tower with a yep. magic quill in and the quill yep. writes on a brick the entire history I of I loved Drew. this thing when I was a kid. I loved and it. And then once he finishes the brick, another brick appears and it goes on writing. Um, but I was just there as a kid like, yeah, but what counts as the history? Like everything that's happening ever, like it couldn't write that. How's, is it writing a third person author? Like, how's it writing? <laughs> and they're like, and it, sometimes it writes so fast it gets ahead of itself and you're like, I don't think that's possible. Like, is it just... It, it must have a POV. It can't write the entire nation. What counts as an important event? How does it know this stuff? Like, it was the one thing I was just like, no, I don't get it. Logic <laughs> fail. That's that's so funny. I remember that bit because I loved it so much. And when when my dad read, sometimes it writes so fast that it writes things that, ha- that haven't happened yet. I remember going, oh, wow, that's so cool. That's so clever for the writer. Um, and then, of course, the significance of that was that in two books down the line, uh, at the end of that, yeah, two books down the line, and I remember what about it was, the next book along, the bad guy of a series spares the main hero and says, you are going to help me. And he says, that's ridiculous. I'd never help you. <laughs> you killed my father. <laughs> <laughs> just to say that but um then the next book uh the bad guy disguised himself as a kid and and the the main character lets him in and then he transports back into himself and said i told you you'd help me uh and i remember going <gasps> incredible stuff incredible so the first book series that i was really independent uh about and started reading completely by myself and also the first book series, which I think I truly and ardently loved, um, was the Percy Jackson series. This, I think, clinched it. This is what made me a fan of fantasy for life. Plenty of people, you know, read the Harry Potter books. Most kids, it feels like, have read the Harry Potter books. Most people aren't fantasy fans. 
they like them well enough, they, but it doesn't get them into the genre. Percy Jackson did that for me. So I feel like I need to give my stamp on Percy Jackson. And it goes like mm-hmm. this. So far we've spoken about like, oh, you, I enjoyed that bit when I was young, but like, you shouldn't revisit it. Percy Jackson, I read for the first time, the age 22. And as far as I'm concerned, it held up beautifully. Like, I hadn't read it before. It was a great book. Like, I couldn't Excellent. critique it. I couldn't break it down and go, this is a kid's book or this is young adult. Well, it obviously mm-hmm. is, like, young adult in terms of its theming and its characters and its coming-of-age story. In terms of just mm-hmm. quality, I was like, it took me to a fantasy world. It took me to an interesting world where gods kind of warp modern-day America. I'll save my American god joke for later. When I was a kid, it just, you couldn't believe how enraptured I was by this story. I talked about it to my one of a friend who had read the series nonstop. We would not stop talking about the series together. Uh, one break time, I just read the chapter titles to him one by one, and each one made him laugh. I loved Greek mythology already. One of the books my dad had read to me was a book on Greek mythology, you know, in somewhat chronological order from the creation of the universe to, I don't know, the Gigantomachia. And, man, it just brought everything together. I started reading so much ancient Greek mythology from the Odyssey and, and other stories of Greek heroes because of this series. This is the first series I ever had to wait for a book to be written. I started reading it. I was given it by my granny, who was an American English teacher at the time. She sent it to me. She said, all the kids are reading this. Fell in love. Uh, she sent me the second book. Fell in love with that one too, even though the cover of a book was absolutely hideous. And then there was no third book. I had to wait for a book to come out. I genuinely didn't realize at that point that you had to wait for books to come out, like a movie. <laughs> and... Back then, Duncan, this was a time period where uh, VHS tapes are being phased out, blockbusters are still around, and you had to wait when a movie came out for it to show up on CD. You don't have to do that anymore. Um, sometimes it feels like you watch a movie one day and then the next day you can find it in Tesco. That wasn't the case back then. I was waiting ages for this book to come out, and it came out in America first, and my granny came over to the UK and then she wouldn't give it to me. It was in her suitcase. I was like, please, please give me the book, Granny. I'm so desperate to read it. And she said, patience is a virtue. Um, <laughs> well, Jenny, and... I've never met your grandma, but I like her for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't understand why she didn't want me to read. Uh, and she finally gave it to me. And yeah, I devoured those books. Absolutely amazing. How far did you get into the series, Duncan? Oh, that's a very good question. I've only read the original uh, five, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. I think it's the, mm-hmm. there's the sub-series. And I know he's gone and written multiple other sub-series. Yeah. I- I'll be honest. I-, I said, oh, it's perfect. And uh, reading it in like 22, it's the same. But also, I did think it had a very good ending. You know, when I put that final book down, I went, cool, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to move on yep. to like all the rest of fantasy. No, again, uh-huh. it's not marking its quality. It's just... As we've learned from doing this podcast, there's a lot of books out there. And I just felt like I'd given Rick Royden, like, it's his time. Ticked him off. Mm-hmm. You're great. I need to try out other authors. I find it's really impressive how much how much uh, people are still so loyal 
to Rick Ryden and his uh, his series of books. Because boy, how did he write a lot. The first five books, I figured that was the end when I read them. Because it does have basically a perfect ending. Um, and then I was really surprised in the beginning of secondary school when he wrote not just another series, but two concurrent series in the same universe. He first wrote um, The Kane Chronicles, I think, came next, which is his foray into Egyptian mythology instead of Greek. And he also wrote the direct sequel to, um, to the Percy Jackson series, which started to weave in the Roman counterparts to the Greek myths, um, parallel to the, um, the ancient Greek stuff. I read two of one of those series and three of the other. I didn't finish either. Um, I don't think they were as good. Or maybe I was just getting a little too old. But then again, like you say, grown-ups are reading those books and still enjoying them. So maybe there was a slight decline in quality. I think that's uh, quite possible. I definitely felt another one we've mentioned earlier, which I didn't bring up at the time, but I know like Owen Colfer is like Arsenal Fantasies that I'd love to start. But things just start to wane. After the lost colony. Oh, yes. I I think... Time paradox, Even mate. as a kid, even as a kid, I was like, I was like, this is, this is, something's missing. Something has declined. I got to book seven in Artemis Fowl, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to read the next one. I don't think I'm going to find out what happens. And it turns out there was only one more to come after that, but I've never read it, and I've never heard anyone talk about it. I think, so you read, I think, one more than me then? I read Time Paradox, mm. and then I think there's like the Atlantis something or other, and then one more Yeah, book. it's actually just, I think it was just bad. Like, I remember, uh, once again, like you said around Droon, uh, surprisingly dark, Artemis starts to go get schizophrenia. Mm. It's an interesting it's... one, isn't it? Yeah. And do you think this yeah. kind of relates to Percy Jackson? There's a point where your hero has had his journey, and I think this is a big question. A lot of literature, a lot of authors are tackling this you know, what happens after the hero's journey? You know, someone becomes mm. king, how do they rule? It's a really interesting question, but I do think it's an incredibly hard one to answer. And just because you wrote the hero's journey brilliantly doesn't mean mm-hmm. your follow-up's going to be the same calibre. We're going to talk about, I don't know, that topic a lot later. I, I know for a fact I'm going to make you read some of the Shadowhunter books. It's just a question of where we start because it gets so sprawling and spin-off-y. Well, let's put a uh, hold on that for a second because um, mm-hmm. I need to tell you about the first book series that I read yep. for myself. And this series, I think, probably targeted a slightly younger audience than Percy Jackson. And I don't think it's as good as Percy Jackson, but it, it clicked for me because I think this series is much more of a transition from where we're talking about Droom to that sort of young adult and this can i guess what it is yes you can is it the belgariad no it's not very interesting i have read the belgariad i actually read the belgariad i've mentioned this quite a few times on the podcast belgariad i again that's one of the ones i read when i was an adult i was in my 20s Mm. early 20s still in my no i'm not in my early 20s anymore oh god um i was in my (laughs) early 20s when i read the belgariad again good series that i think has held up well it's enjoyable then no this book series and i i don't know how well know it is how well known it is here in the uk as far as i'm aware it's not actually had that wide of a release i had to get my omnibus editions of this series when my auntie visited australia 
Okay. Is it by an Australian writer? Uh, I can't actually speak to the office nationality. I would not be surprised if she was. Um, but I, d- I don't know. The book is written by Emily Roder, or Roder, and it's the Del Toro Quest series. Del Toro. That sounds kind of familiar. Oh, you've not heard. So, let me tell people at home, Del Toro Quest was a series of books. The original Del Toro Quest was eight books, all only about 135, 150 pages long each one. That told it's this hero's journey of this king that is disposed and evil takes over the land. And the king had a magical belt that had seven jewels um, encrusted in it that allowed him to ward off evil. Mm. Uh, there was a diamond, an emerald, a... What game was L? Lupaz? Lazulazu? I don't know the name of the jewel. Lapis Lazuli? Yes, Lapis Lazuli. A topaz. You see where this goes. I can see only one of us was really into Minecraft growing up. <laughs> a ruby. And each one of the books was the journey to go and get one of these stones. And there would always be oh. a particular challenge. It would be in a different location. And they would travel across the round. And it was a party of three. Um, and it's a wonderful kind of adventure. And this starts off being read to me. And eventually, I couldn't take the pace because my mum was reading it to me and she was too slow. <laughs> I was like, nope, <laughs> I'm doing this. Uh, but what made these books really good, easy to read? One was the fact that each book was its own little adventure, very well done. But mm-hmm. also... There would always be like puzzles that the, the they had to solve in their adventures. And there'd be really good pictures as well. And you were very much invited as the reader to like solve the puzzle on one page. Like the riddle. There'd be like, it would always, like Riddles in the Dark, except Ooh. in like The Hobbit. Except like you actually were invited as a child reader to, to guess the answer before going mm. to the next page. That's how my that's what uh that's my dad sometimes did that when something like that like a puzzle would be in a story he'd stop and ask if I could solve it. There was a great moment as well when um there's like a door they had to open, and there'd be a picture mm-hmm. of the door on the page, with these really like mm. long lines going up the door. The the puzzle would be like, open inwards. Would be the sign on on top of the door. But if you lift the book up and looked at it um, from like below, the long lines on the door would then form into words. So you physically had to move the book to read it. Interesting. And it was that's like very clever. Open inwards, and then you, if you picked the book up and looked upwards, it would then say, "If you want to die," or something like that. <gasps> I know. And then the characters would be like, "So you then do that," and then in the next page, the characters would then go, "Wait." what about if we look from below and then they'll be like oh we need to open the door outwards and they, and they realize like that doesn't trigger like the trap door mechanism or something along those lines that's just one example there are loads in the series and that's really, really good. good i like that so yeah really nice series it had a two follow-up series i think it i can't unlike percy jackson i maybe wouldn't recommend it to an adult but to an adult mm. with kids I would love, I think you should give it, because it has that extra interaction, especially with a child who maybe struggles just with the reading, to kind of engage mm-hmm. and explore. Uh, not only that, as the series goes on, it does get a little bit darker, but in a quite a nice way. There's this, um, there's a character, um, that's a portrayal, betrayal, that's the word, that is really nicely handled. I think it's a great way for, especially as a young child, to be like, not everyone who's nice to you is like someone you can trust. 
but unlocking that Beatrice mm-hmm. Potter, oh, watch out for the Mr. Fox, is actually done very, le- I think, very real and very legitimately. And I thought that was an mm-hmm. excellently well done lesson on top of all the wonderful lantern monsters there were. So yeah, the Tor Quest. Recommend. Aye. Thank you for sharing that, Duncan. That was excellent. Uh, the next one I'm going to bring up, um, and this will be one step along from Percy Jackson. This will be when I've wrapped up the series. How do you know? What am I moving on to next? How do you know? I'm you? now... Uh, I am now just entered secondary school. I am now 11 years old. I and am probably, just so people know, I, because I've gone to reading late, I may be 12. Just maybe 12 and a half. At this stage. Um, the series that I'm talking about, and I will be enjoying this from the age of 11 till whatever year we do GCSEs in. Year 10. Year so 10, I'd year 11. 15, 15 years old. Yeah. Uh, the series which I've sp- spanned that period of time was the Aragon books. Oh, another one that had a not so great film adaptation. Uh, what film adaptation, man? What are you talking about? Oh. What, uh, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you saying? Oh, no, you've repressed the memories. It's probably for the best. Uh, Moving on. Oh, no, there was no film adaptation. Don't you worry, Geordie. Don't you worry, Geordie. That never happened. Okay, sure. Why am I shaking? Why do I, why do I taste (laughs) copper? Uh, anyway, the Aragorn books. Uh, I love these as a teenager. What, not only were they a series of books which I really enjoyed and which I could feel maturing alongside me, they were also a series which were the first one I sort of critically examined that, like, it prompted the question of, like, well, you know, this is just, like, ripping off Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And where I had a moment was like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize I could enjoy a series and, like, point out some of the ways in which it doesn't work. I'd only up to that point being like, if you can criticize a book, it means it's bad. And therefore, you should make fun of anyone who enjoys it. It was this, uh, it was a maturing moment of realizing that I could acknowledge the ways in something wasn't amazing and still enjoy it. I think that's a really good lesson to learn. And something many respects, mm-hmm. I, I think I've learned it now, but it took me a while. For me, the lesson I had to learn from this book series was people were criticizing it. It's like, oh, it's written by like, how old the author in this book? You wrote Aragorn when it first came out? He started writing it when he was 14 and he published right. the first book when he was 15. Christopher Paolini. Right. This is the thing. I like people criticize it and I was criticizing it. And then it was mm-hmm. only when I was about 21 that it really clicked on me at uh, the colossal achievement of a 15 year old and that I couldn't write this well at 21 and I still can't at 26. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if I could ever write this competently as he does, I would consider that pretty darn good for me. Absolutely. I, I'm really excited for when we one day read Aragon for this book club. I'll be the one who recommends it, I'm sure, because I feel like we are going to, when we read it, be like, this is this is just good. This is just a good book. I think that is what's going to happen. So I never read the whole series, Geordie. Uh, it was never like my encapsulated me. The film came out. I sought out the book. I read the first book and I was like, mm-hmm. uh, I've got something else going on at the moment. And I'll get to that in a sec. And I kind of went back to what gotcha. I was reading. Um, but gotcha. often I was like thinking back on it. And I was still, you know, 14, maybe at this point. I never really thought about the prose. I, I only ever criticised the ideas. And I'm like, well, that character's mm-hmm. a bit like Obi-Wan. But even then, some of the ideas, some of the imagery. I remember in the first book, there's this like massive mountain. That's like another massive mountain inside. 
and like a fortress. I'm like, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's a cool visual, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it'll be a good book to, for us to analyze because we can point out the ways in which it pays homage or steals or whatevers from other successful fantasy stories. And we can talk about the ways in which a 14-year-old was adding his own spin on things. Uh, I started writing around when I was 12-ish. And uh, my stories weren't, were not original in the slightest. They were inspired by all sorts of things. And it was only later down the line, which I sort of really got more confident about my own particular ideas. And I would like to see whether that is true for that series of books. I did read all of the Aragon books, all four. Um, even back then, I was like, this last book's pretty long. doesn't need to be this long. But I read Preisinger, uh, the third book, again and again and again. And it is not a jam-packed book. It is much longer than it needs to be. But it was a real comfort read for me. I just, I just loved it so much. I was so involved. And here's the craziest part. I don't know if I read the second book. <laughs> Seriously. I don't remember. I have no memory of reading it. I remember some scenes, but I think I might have, I think I might have, like, actually skipped it. I, I don't know how to respond to that. Like, do, was this, do you reckon, a conscious decision or just, like, your mum went to the library, got you the third book first, and you just went, ah, oh, sod it, let's power, let's keep going. No, actually, I think that's pretty close to exactly how it went. I think that I was so excited for these for the third book to come out, even though I hadn't finished the second book. And then we went into Heifers, and it was just there. It was just there. And not only was it there, it was a soft cover, which means it had been out for a while, and I hadn't found out. So I immediately asked my parents to buy it for me, and then I very excitedly read it. I think that's exactly what happened. That's really nice. Did the author write um, any more books then after the... Is it the, is the Aragon the name of the series? Uh, it's called The Inheritance Cycle, and since then he has written another series. Um, the author's now in his mid, mid-30s, and he's just concluded last year this big, like, sci-fi novel series. Um, but he is still writing, and he still has a fan base, and he seems to have a really good relationship with his fans, uh, from what I've seen. That will go beyond the purview of this podcast. He did say in his author's note in the last book of the series, um, of the Inheritance Cycle, which was, of course, called... Um, were they all named after dragons? Was that the idea? No, no, none of them are actually named after dragons. They're not even all named after people. Like the second book is called Eldest, and I assumed that the big red dragon on the cover of Eldest was gonna be, Eldest? you know, the name of a dragon, but it wasn't. It just wasn't. Eldest refers to the fact that someone is an eldest son. Okay. Uh, also, the last cover of the um, of the the book. Oh, it's called Inheritance. Well, that makes sense. It's it's a huge spoiler, a huge spoiler. Like the cover of every book is a dragon, and the cover of the fourth book reveals a green dragon, whom we do not know exists. It's a huge spoiler that there is going to be a fourth green dragon, and from that you can kind of extrapolate some things about the plot. Right. Um, which kind of give the whole thing away completely. No more, no more. 
let's not spoil this. It'll be like when yep. Tolkien named it Return of the King. Come on. <laughs> That's just, that is just a spoiler. <laughs> so, uh... in this time period, Geordie, I was reading something different and something that I continued okay. to read from when I got into it uh, all the way through until literally the author just stopped putting out books. Um, my mum got me into this series. She has a huge collection. In fact, she not only collected the whole Thank series. Thank you, Mrs. Duncan. She has it in in paperback and in hardback, and is now collecting a second run of hardbacks. This book series, I read. Oh, in the time, I've reread multiple books in this series. If I had to, I said the Hobbit is my favorite book. This is my favorite book series. This is my. If I get okay. sent to a desert island, this is what I'm picking. And also, you mentioned how uh, his dark materials affected your relationship with like religion. This is something similar to me. But maybe a different approach. Do you want to have a guess, Geordie? This is what turned you into a Mormon? Yes. That's exactly how it happened. What can I say? <laughs> Terry Pratchett promotes that stuff. Because, of course, I'm talking about Discworld. Oh, of course. I can't. This series, just balancing that idea of relatively simple prose and, like, funny, yet not pulling punches in terms of character development and ideas and really got me thinking at that young age about how you define sort of your villains these concepts not even actually talking about literature uh one thing mm-hmm. the character of death huge influence yeah. in how i had to like process that as like a young child um mm-hmm. as both a concept and then as a character uh just well for someone who doesn't know um, it's the best fantasy book series ever and you should read it um, I don't know what else to add to that it is a uh, parody based yep. fantasy series 40 I'm going to say 44 but that's uh, June 42, 41 I can't actually know the exact number now um, 42 we said it in an early episode thank you 42 good books. omens that was it yes oh yes I always forget there's the semi-graphic novel one The Last Hero to count um Ah. series of fantasy worlds set all on the same place uh the magical disc world which sits on the back of four giant elephants that ride on the back of a giant turtle the great atun who glides through space and it parodies and pulls from so many elements of fiction and real life and the 42 Mm -hmm. books are broken down into a sub-series focusing on a different uh ensemble cast of characters exactly you've got the wizards you've got witches uh very different cultures one is university and academic ridicule one is the the witches they look at fairy tales and shakespeare plays then you've got the watch that are parodying you know like Mm -hmm. development and industrialization as well as those old crime stories then you've got Mm -hmm. death which is looking at gods and mortality and concept of time and space and then one that I absolutely adore is the the more young adult book is Tiffany Aching, which is sort of a follow-up to The Witches uh, that deals with sort of folklore and stories like that. And it's so multifaceted, yet still cohesive. I just, I can't put out how well it's done and I can't compare yes. it to anything in terms of both written quality and scope. It really does defy belief that someone could write you know 42 books in in the span of of so many years and that they would all take place in the same world and that they'd all be cohesive 
and and stand next to each other and for the most part be of really high quality i know people say there are some duds in there um um, I'm gonna, I and love that, the series, but unseen academicals. Come on, like football, soccer for the Americans. Don't continue to. I thought, don't, I thought people liked that one. People might have. I, I just think after you've given me, you know, ancient gods and mortality and the crime and justice system, uh, the mm-hmm. British soccer or football culture just found it a very interesting pick. But people do like mm. it. But yeah, no, sorry, go on. We'll talk more about the Discworld in the future. We know that quite for I sure. Think so. uh, I have especially where someone should start in the series. Oh. Because you shouldn't start in book one. We've covered that ground. Very important not to do that. I should also just throw yeah. out there. Uh, Rookie error. Reading Discworld also in this period. It's not fantasy. But I'd, I'd like to throw this in here. I was also reading an awful lot of Bernard Cornwell at this age. Um, mm. I was literally flipping between. It'd be like, Tay Pratchett. Sharp, Tay Pratchett, Saxon story, big influence, and I, I do sometimes wish I read more historical fiction. But out to you, Geordie. Let's close out this era. Let's turn eight. Let's turn sixteen. Let's become a young adult. Yes. So the the next part is very resolutely um, my teen years, and it starts at the age probably of fourteen ish, but. It's very focused around the age of 15 in particular. Because at the age of 15, um, I stopped reading. Like, I, yeah, for the most part, I stopped reading. Yeah, I what? had been a huge, voracious reader for my entire life. And at this point, um, I, I stopped. And the reason why I stopped was that I started writing instead. When I was 15, having done some, like, little writing projects where I'd literally be writing on like my phone's note app I decided I was going to write a novel and I sat down and time when I would have spent reading books I instead would take out my laptop and I would keep writing it took me a long time to write my first novel I only really finished it five years later at the age of 20 on my fifth draft was I were like it's finished it's done and in that time, the amount of reading I had done drastically, drastically decreased. And in some ways, until like, until literally that that year when I finished it, five years after, at the age of twenty, um, that was when I started reading again, like like really inconsistently. And um, up until then, it had been a bit here and there. What got me through in that time and my relationship to fantasy. Outside of the fact that my the fantasy I was mostly engaging in was my own story, was it had just swapped to a different medium. Since I didn't have time to commit to huge novels, instead I was reading uh, a lot of manga. A lot of manga. This is when I got into manga and anime and stuff like that. So I, I know of a few manga. I know of one manga in particular that you've spoken yes. a lot about in this era. Mm-hmm. And that would be Berserk. Yeah, was there anything, I read that when I was 16. Was there anything else then that kind of uh, picked up? Because I'm trying to think up years. I know I'm a little bit older, but I know, you know, this is a time period where particularly things like uh, Naruto, Bleach, One Piece, dominating the frame. Yeah, yeah you, you, got it, you nailed it there. Um, the big one for a time would be Dragon Ball. That was one I was really into. I watched the, um, the anime for that 
uh, because I really enjoyed the abridged series on YouTube. I thought it was very funny, which led to me watching the TV show illegally. Um, I had a very strange intro to Dragon Ball, which was that when I was young, um, the original Dragon Ball cartoon, which was made in the late 80s, was on TV. And it was in the, the final arc of that was going on. Immediately after Goku had killed King Piccolo, was about to take part in his last Tenkaichi Budokai. And um, at the same time, one day, I turned on the TV and Dragon Ball Z was playing. Not Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, which takes place in the future. It's the sequel series. The characters are the same, but they're all much older. So suddenly, I had gone from watching Goku as a kid to watching Goku turn to Super Saiyan 3 for the first time. I was watching something from the Majin Buu arc. I had never seen a Super Saiyan. <laughs> I had never seen a Majin Buu. And I was so, so confused. And the way I interpreted this in my head was this, this was some weird sci-fi movie based on Dragon Ball in which Goku had traveled to the future. Because I thought that Goten, Goku's son, was Goku, and this was the future version of Goku, doing some weird... Why is his hair so long? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, I, can, I can see how this happened. I just love that it did. I was five years old when it happened. Oh, okay. That's much more understandable. Oh, I never yeah. had that moment. I never really saw... Dragon Ball was on, but I never really watched it. Um... I generally avoided a lot of anime on TV uh, growing up. I don't know why. I just, it, it always had that a slight, the animation style, the sort of lower budget actual animation always just made me a bit more wary. It wasn't until I got to my teens that a friend introduced me to uh, Naruto um, mm. for a video game, actually. We wanted to play a fighter game together, and the only one he had was like Naruto Broken Bonds, I think, on the 360. Um, and that's my introduction. But I was never, I wasn't never the biggest fan. If you want to count hours, I technically should have watched a lot, like thousands mm -hmm. of episodes of uh, yeah, Naruto it's... and Bleach. But it doesn't feel like that looking back. Oh well. The reason for that is filler, uh, because so much of that is stuff you could literally turn off your brain or completely skip and miss nothing out on. They just made up new content. Uh, my relationship to anime kicked off before I could barely remember things like. Before I could really focus, uh, before I could read, I was watching the Pokemon anime and Yu-Gi-Oh! and stuff like that. My, it really became fantasy to me because of stuff like Naruto and Bleach, which are, which are fantasy stories. They're about magic. Bleach, in particular, was my absolute favorite. Uh, it was the first manga I ever read. It was given to me for, uh, for my birthday present by my friend Owen, who was my dungeon master. Um, the next year he gave me Death Note, which is also a fantasy series, and that's a very fantastic series for getting people into manga. And then after that I was hooked. I, later on, I took part, I was, I was the most, the most involved I've ever been in a fandom was the Fairy Tale fandom, Fairy, T-A-I-L, which is a manga series about wizards, um, I re that's when I first started reading fan fiction. I think we're going to have to have a moment where we talk about fantasy and anime and its influences because all these are undeniably fantasy. But I think it's very mm. interesting that a lot of them 
either step away from or very much subvert what is considered traditional fantasy, especially medieval. The medieval setting is gets thrown out the window mm-hmm. so often uh, with a lot of kind of manga works, and I do love it yeah. for it. They're, they're, there's so much in conversation with one another. Manga as a whole can't escape from either, depending on the way you look at it, Dragon Ball or just Journey to the West. They are so resolutely latched onto it. And even when they go back and try to take part in um, European settings or make ones that are basically Dungeons and Dragons, and looking at that, you're talking about something like Goblin Slayer. Even when they do that, it's still really connected to manga and anime's own sense of aesthetics. So they're all wrapped up. These days, it feels more like JRPGs have more of an influence on the sensibilities of of fantasy like that uh, than anything that either comes out of the West or even was just originally a manga or or anime. See, I think people, you're all going to realise in the next moment where me and Georgie really diverged. Because what I'm going to come out with is when he skewed, when he zigged left, I zigged right. When he went into exploring like anime, maybe reading a lot less, not reading the big heavy books, I turned 15 and I picked up The Song of Ice and Fire. Ah, And this was my turning point. (laughs) <laughs> this is when I read Song of Ice and Fire. I bit so sorry behind this. The first season of the TV show come out, uh, 2011, mm. I believe. Yep, got a lot of buzz, and obviously I go, what this? So I buy the first season, and I watch it, and I go, more please. And I end up, I'd been saving up for like a new graphics card, and my stepdad was like, you know, do you want me to take you down to the PC shop and we'll go and pick it up? I was like, no. No, no, no. I have something else for my money now. It's like, what? I'm like, I need to buy this entire, like, seven long book series. It'll cost the same amount of money. And I never been really confused, like, are you sure? You have been saving up for this graphics <laughs> card for quite a few months. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm sure. Um, and I, I bought the box set. Uh, Dance of Dragons has just come out. And I read them all in just under two and a half weeks. The entirety of Song of Ice and Fire. And that set a tone. Wait, 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 hang on. How long? Two and a half weeks. 19 days. Do you want to be precise? I'm... That, that's, that's impossible. That's not possible. So what I would do, I would read it before school. I go to school, and in my breaks, I go to the library and I read it. At lunch, I go and read it. Um, when I was in English, we got to read for like the first 10 minutes... Or five minutes in English, like it's like a settle down class, and I'd read then, mm-hmm. and I would get so engrossed that one time the teacher had to come over and put another and put a piece of paper between me and the page for me to look up, because when she said back <laughs> to the front, everyone, I just didn't hear her. When I get home, <laughs> I would go straight to my bedroom, lie on my bed, and keep reading. I would get cooled down for dinner. I would do my homework, and then I'd go and read, and because I was just all quiet with my book, Geordie. My mum never noticed that I didn't go to bed and I'd read till one in the morning, half one in the morning, fall asleep, wake up, mm. wake up around seven, read for an hour, get ready for school, repeat. And I wow. burned through the entire thing. Duncan, how did this affect you psychologically? Uh, probably not. Then the again, best. I guess it was a short period of time. So maybe you could like wipe over it. 
But like, do you remember that period of time? Like, I remember, at all? Like, I remember being on like the first book, and then I remember like being like, because I had the box set like above my bed, um, literally by my head, ominously. Yeah, and sort so of damage. I genuinely remember being on like the second half of the third book, and just kind of being like, I've gone for the previous two, but oh, the the third book was published in two volumes. Just make the numbers make sense. And being on like the second half of the third book and just being like, I don't I don't fully recognise the moment I'd stopped one and picked up the next. And I do struggle with that. If it wasn't for the TV show, I really struggle uh, knowing where the book boundary lines are in A Song of Ice and Fire. Because I read it in such a smush. Um, it's not until you get to the fourth and fifth books where it's sort of divided by geography that I can kind of break them apart a bit more. Sure. But yeah, it was it was intense. And then I finished that. I must have been, no, I must have been 16 when this happened. So I was 16, and then I did the next big thing. The moment that redefined me and, like, fantasy literature is I was like, I finished Song of Life and Fire. Mm-hmm. When's the next book coming out? Just released the last one. How long, on average, does this author take to write a book? And, uh, yeah, I thought he wouldn't be done till 2014, and that was too long, Geordie. Too long. <laughs> so I typed something else into Google. I said, I typed in, books like Game of Thrones enter and then they're like a wheel of time oh wheel of time mazalan books has a fallen black company um yeah all that basic bitch shit all that basic stuff and interesting enough i never got into mazalan i've only actually read the first book i've only read the first five wheel of time and it took me i take basically a year off between them interesting enough it was actually like black company was the first one that i was like yes please more that's not surprising considering your love of conan i feel like my understanding of those book series that they are just to be slightly grimmer grittier but they're still adventure stories um i would strongly possibly disagree and i think you're gonna have to read glenn cook glenn cook is a author of black company uh very good when it comes to the green grim dark that man's not scared to experiment sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't uh, I'm going to tell you a bit about Black Company now. Black Company, guys, is a fantastic book series of grim, dark, fantasy world. But what it is, it's written... Uh, the book you're reading is meant to be a real-world ar- artefact. It is like the journals mm-hmm. and like archives of this mercenary company. Uh, the author sticks to that like real-world aesthetic and the idea that this has only been written down by like the company's doctor uh, mm-hmm. to a fault sometimes. But it's very interesting um yeah. yeah i've i mean i'm very, i'm interested in the impact which the black company has had on um fantasy genre as a whole uh more so than i am in actually reading the series uh i have a i have an rpg upstairs which i think i pitched to you guys at a lancer session duncan a couple of weeks back i can't remember if you were at that one though it's called um band of blades I, i'm vaguely aware it, Okay, it's it's based on well, it's in, heavily inspired by the Black Company books, and says you play the role of a mercenary company in a zombie apocalypse. I don't know whether that reflects on the uh, how that reflects at all on the I, uh, I would, Black I Company I would probably books. say no, that doesn't. Um, is not a tower in those books made of dead people? Not though. There is a uh, a, a very iconic tower 
Um, there's like the Dark Sorcerers. There's actually multiple towers now I think about. If you're an evil sorcerer in the Black Company universe, you get a tower. Shall we say two? There's at least two towers. Two ta- yeah, uh, yeah, actually there are two towers. One at the very north of the world, one at the very south. I think one's black, yeah. one's white. Yeah, they play off a bit. Okay. Yeah, we noticed that before. But it's very much a world okay. where if you become an evil sorcerer, you get a tower. Um, mm. And you also get to just survive. Like, wizards get killed and then get brought back in later books. And you're just like, magic? Based off magic, that Fair author. Um, but no, very good grimdark. And this is where I sort of explored. And this is where I've started already going. I want to get into the different nooks and crannies of fantasy genre as like a history. We're kind of moving on. I'm 18, 19, going to university. Um, I would say you talk about falling off reading. There's a bit here where I fell off a little bit. I just finished, I think, Black Company itself, actually. Might have been a Wheel of Time book. And I had a bit of a moment when I was like, oh gosh, that was exhausting. I need something light. Just a bite size. Just a tiny bit of fantasy uh, to fit around my studies. Um, and so this is when I then discovered uh, Conan the Barbarian. Talked about it on Facebook every episode of this podcast. I think, Georgie, we need to have a <laughs> game where we don't mention Robert E. Howard or Conan the Barbarian for an episode. I'm sure we've done that. I don't think we have. You go back and listen to our episodes. People at home, do it. Uh, that way we get more uh, technical views. <laughs> um, That's right. And the first person to tell us uh, which which uh, episode we first don't talk about them, uh, you can write in and you'll get a prize. That prize may, might be just us saying your name out loud, but it'll exactly. feel good. Satisfaction. People will pay actual money for that, Duncan. That's the sweetness of a podcast game. Um, and then, yeah, the rest is history. I definitely took a... You went into manga. I'm only actually just getting into manga myself. I went down into a lot of Western comics. Again, because yes. I was... Wait, that, that is something we should talk about in the future. I the difference so. between Western comics and manga and the ways in which they divert. Somewhere out there, there is a um, an unholy union. Someone should write the unholy union of uh, fantasy Western comics and um, and manga fantasy comics and creates the greatest comic book of all time, combining you know the getting away from the horrible tropes of manga, but also maintaining the peak beautiful dynamism and action, and you know it would be fantastic. Oh wait, it does. It's called a berserk. I saw that joke. I was sat here like, yeah. should I chime in and be like, isn't that Berserk? I was like, ah, he's got it. Duncan, it's a good week for Berserk. They've released the first two chapters, not created by um, Kentaro Miura. Uh, they have, as I said in a previous podcast before, they have greenlit the series to continue under the bannership of Morikoji and Kentaro Miura's assistants. And it's beautiful. They're doing an amazing job so far. Well, I'm very excited to see how that turns out. Um, I'm trying to think mm-hmm. if I could uh, counterpoint this. Not really. Oh, it's an exciting year for Conan. Uh, <laughs> I know. That's This is my counterpoint. There's a new book coming out, Geordie. We might cover it. A new book by whom? I don't even know at this point. I think it's called, like, And the Silver ah. Serpent's Blood. Um, the Sin of Elephant's Blood? <laughs> and the Silver Serpent's Blood or something like that. The Blood of okay. the Silver Serpent. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, okay, Geordie, so bring this like to full circle, looking back on getting into fantasy, you've got to stick a pin in something and be like, I think you've made it quite clear, but when you're like, no, that was it, that was the moment there was no return for me in loving yeah. fantasy. 
yeah, that would be, exactly, that's the Percy Jackson series. It got me into Greek mythology, which informed all of, uh, a huge amount of my interests in history going forward. Like, it, I mean, that book literally changed my life. It made me interested in Greek mythology, which made me interested in Greek history, which made me interested in history, which made, which led to all the GCSEs and A-levels I took, which led to what I did at university. Like, that, it is a focal point for my life. If things turn on that screw. I think for me, it, it would be a split between something like Discworld and The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. I would have to put the pin, however, I would put the pin in The Hobbit. Oh, that felt mm. bad almost. Oh, it's the pin in Discworld. Oh, one defines, I think, my love of literature. One defines me more as a person. I think my love of The Hobbit loved me reading books and just consuming books as a medium. Um, but Discworld has had a much greater impact on forming me. And my personality and my worldviews. But it's a balance between the two. You mentioned that it was a book which made you question religion. And I don't think you, you, you dug into that too much. It wasn't so much about questioning religion in the sense that it broke down um, like my personal beliefs. It, was, it just got mm. me questioning the world. And seeing things. Like I said, it's quite, you know, a lot of parody kind of comedy. But it really got me thinking about what's important and oh, there's a particular quote from the Hogfather book, which I'm sure hundreds of people have talked about. And mm-hmm. it just makes you, it's all about, I'm not going to quote it out here on the podcast. People go and read it or look it up on YouTube. Someone's probably read it people very dramatically. People need to believe things, right? People need to believe things. And the ultimate thing is that he talks about, you know, two fairies, Father Christmas. These are the little lies that help us believe the big ones, like truth and justice. And... This really kind of hit me the first time it made me think there's no objective factual idea of like what is good and what is not good, um, what is evil. And that really got me thinking like, how do you define that? And then, like you said, it then goes on to people need to believe things to be people. It's part of who we are and it's not wrong because that's to believe things. It's just human. oh Mm -hmm. i can't put i can't put it on this podcast people because it's such a dynamism of like you you're going to believe in things it's good to believe in things it's what you choose to believe in that kind of has an impact Mm. and it made me just reassess you know what you know you belief is it made me think that belief was a choice and even though it might not Mm -hmm. technically be a choice i'm not arguing that's a philosophical point the fact that i then started to think it was a choice almost made it a choice Thank you for sharing that, Dunk. Thank you. No, it felt quite emotional. You, you, uh, you asked to push the buttons there, Geordie. I was just going to breeze on <laughs> over it and talk about other books. Right. Okay, one more thing then before we close. I do want one other interview question. Geordie, you get to recommend... Where do you see yourself in five years' times? <laughs> um, doing the same job, but better. How about you? Good for you. Uh, Geordie, oh, you get to recommend one of your books from your childhood to a young child today. Uh the child can be whatever age you want. What's the one that you're like, oh no, not to a child, sorry, you're pitching it to their parent. You're like, please, mm. you have a child, you should introduce them to this book series. And this is when and this is why. What is it? Uh, I guess I'm pitching, I guess I'm pitching Percy Jackson because it's a good book for getting kids into literature, but also because um, what it does well is that it really draws attention to um, things like ADHD and dyslexia. Like, um, I remember thinking about asking you about this, Dunk, when you first mentioned that you had dyslexia. 
whether you'd read Percy Jackson growing up, because um, all the characters in that, by being demigods, um, they're, uh, they are, by their nature, they are dyslexic and they have ADHD. Rick Ryden did this because his son had dyslexia and ADHD and had so much trouble at school. So he wants to make a character whom kids like his son could relate to. And it genuinely, like, improved my life by making me less judgmental about kids who couldn't pay attention in class and who acted up. And I think that's a great lesson to learn. I haven't read more of those books into the future, but I know he diversifies his, um, uh, his, the same sort of message to other things around race and, and gender and, and sexualities and stuff. So, so I, so I'd recommend that book to, um, to any parent considering what am I going to do to get my kid into reading? Either that or, uh, Droon, I guess. We're going to have to revisit that one for the really little kids. I know. I, I feel like I'm really stumped at this point because I want to answer this question and I'm always like, well, really, Percy Jackson's a better pick than any of the books that I just happen to read. I do want to bring up, mm-hmm. though, Del Toro Quest again because I don't think it's enough uh, kudos. I say that. It doesn't give enough kudos in the UK. It has an anime adapt- adaption. It's like 65 episodes that adapt the whole series. That's weird. I know. Really quite horrible. And like an RPG on the DS I learnt while Googling earlier today. That's That's very strange. Maybe it's very popular in Japan. Just don't know. Um, I don't think that's the one I'm going to recommend to like every kid. I, I do feel like though, what's a really good thing is it's very healthy, especially when you're if you're trying to uh, get into the late teenage years. Terry Pratchett. Firstly, if you as an adult haven't read it, read it, and then I won't need to explain to you why you should get your developing child to read it. Just know the pros are quite simple, but the ideas are quite complex, and maybe you want to wait until they hit like that senior school okay. level. I was going to skip this earlier, Duncan, but you're gonna, you can't just tell people to read Discworld. Pick a book. Oh, right, fine. Um, you should read Mort. There you go. I've answered the question. You want to know why? Listen to our episode where we explain which Discworld book to read. That episode hasn't been made yet, though, so stay tuned. <laughs> I was very confused. I was like, oh, no, I've done too much podcasting. I'm forgetting my episodes. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. No, thank you all. Please do, if you've picked up any of suggestions and you like the books, do write in and tell us. Uh, it's just justfantasypodcast at gmail.com. And also tell us about what books influenced you. What were the ones that cinched mm-hmm. fantasy for you? Which were the ones that you got read to by your parent um, that really took you to another world? If any of you have read Secrets of Droon, let us know you exist. Um, we gotta, we got to start a convention. I think we have to. And yeah, I really mm-hmm. want to hear, especially people from different ages, you know, both me and Geordie, although, you know, different ages, both grew up during the, so mostly the noughties, is that what we're calling them? The early 2000s? Yes. Excellent. Uh, so we have very similar kind of book influences. If you're a child of an 80s or the 90s or hell, the 70s, even the 50s, I don't know who listens to this yet, um, write in and let us know. Now. Is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com and come back next week when we'll pick up our normal book clubbing um, habits with American Gods. Hooray! So long, everybody. Bye, everyone.